0: Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the frontline. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful, on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another great episode lined up for today. Today's guest is a senior manager of IT programs at Alaska's largest telecommunications provider. The name of that company is GCI, and I'd like to welcome to the show, Allie Dykes. Hello, Allie, how are you today?
1: Hi, Justin. I'm good. Feeling uh, feeling the freeze here in Alaska. We I, don't quite have snow yet, but we do have frost on the ground, so looking forward to ski season opening.
0: I, I imagine it's cold, and you are officially. We're over 100 episodes into the Frontline Innovators podcast, and you are our first guest from Alaska, so welcome, and I'm thank excited. you for joining us. <laughs> I haven't really thought about all the states that we've covered, but we definitely have not covered Alaska, so I should put some kind of map together and start to... Uh, chart out where we have uh, coverage throughout the United States, but seriously, thank you very much for joining and i um, looking forward to having our conversation today.
1: Yeah, yeah, it should be good.
0: So let me start off with the question that we always ask at the beginning of the show. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing the frontline workforce today?
1: Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this in the last couple of weeks since our original prep call. Um, there's there's so many portions of like challenges that face the Deskless workforce. Um, but what my brain settled on earlier this afternoon um, is maturity of corporate IT models. Um, that I think that that so that's an umbrella term um, that covers a lot of things. Um, but I, I think that that's really where um, a lot of the growing pains out of the de- deskless work- workforce come. Um, you know, things like corporate IT models resisting digital transformation as a concept. Um, like being scared of it for whatever reason, Um, having distrust for the cloud and like all the things that come along with it, um, including just a perceived lack of control around it um, that, you know, maybe... um, that proprietary information or data or something can be more easily accessed um, than it could be on-prem, which I'm sure we'll get into, but everybody knows that you're equally as likely to be hacked in the cloud as you are on-prem. It doesn't matter these days, it's a matter of um, like when, not if. Um, And I think another um, really big thing is there are a lot of companies um, that I have witnessed that have taken analog process and um, applied that process to a digital tool instead of the other way around, Um, right? So we're using digital tools to be able to really maximize what we're doing for return on investment and to benefit the bottom line. Um, And that we're not really allowing that platform to do its job um, because we think that, you know, What we came up with 25 years ago is way better um, than anything that whatever the SaaS platform has to offer is. Um, I think that there's an aspect of outdated cybersecurity principles kind of just going along with the when you get hacked, not if you get hacked, um, the ideas of zero trust and security hardening and all of those. and then even thinking about communication cycles, project management has really taken a huge turn that we all know that it's a huge aspect of, um, of the way our organizations run. Um, and when we're stuck in these waterfall methodologies, it really makes it difficult because then you're depending on, you know, you, Justin, as the CEO of Skillful to make all of the decisions that ever need to be made. Um, but you're not the one that's gonna be sitting there talking with your customers um, firsthand. You're not the one that's gonna know um, that some alarm is being finicky on on an infrastructure piece. Um, that, and so like, why would it make sense to have to run a project decision all the way back up to you? Um, that whereas if you break it down into something like agile or scrum or, or whatever aspect of more cyclic um, project methodologies, um, it really allows people on the ground to be able to make game time decisions. Um, the, and so I think that all of those really go into what I said before about the maturity of corporate IT models, um, so many aspects, um, but absolutely the bane of most people's existence in the corporate world.
0: Wow. All right, we're going to need like three episodes to go cover <laughs> all of that because um, th- there's there's a lot in there to address a couple of things that I, I want to come back to in particular are um, s- some of the ways that those corporate IT models and some of the the perceived risk of using technology might be very different for those of you in corporate IT versus the frontline workers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then I also want to go back to this analog process, you know, being brought into to digital, cause that's, that's near and dear to my heart. So mm-hmm. let's, let's come back to those two things, but let's, right now, give our audience a chance to understand a little bit more about you and and your journey and how you've ended up in the role that you're in today.
1: Yeah. Um, so my journey started, um, in the army. Um, I commissioned as a signal officer into the United States army active duty. Um, so I had a team of, I think it was 22 satellite network and radio technicians who reported into me. Um, we worked on being able to establish tactical um, network infrastructure to connect um, command posts on the battlefield. Um, And then also that um, we had a a higher echelon that we were connected with. Um, And so there were some times where I really played an advisory role um, from our tactical pieces to the the strategic leadership. Um, And so a lot of the way that we would engage in different exercises was via simulations. And so you could see where the fight was being taken on the battlefield. Um, and so being able to take a look at that, analyze what was happening, if certain radio frequencies or um, or other like line, line of sight communications or anything like that um, would be impacted based on how people are moving. Um, so that's where my career started. Um, Before I got out of the Army, I ended up taking kind of a more like logistics planning role, um, which was funny to start really on the the technical side of things and then end um, in the logistics role. Um, A lot of people assumed that I was a logistician um, rather than um, anything technical. Um, So I was able to wear both of those hats very well. Um, It exposed me to a lot of different aspects of huge organizational change, the, and and that's really where um, I, what I was saying before about people at the lowest level, the the frontline workers being able to make game time decisions, like that's one of the reasons that the U.S. military has been so successful over the years is we tend not to um, we tend not to adhere to our own um, our own protocols um, because we do empower the lowest level. Um, and so if, you know, today we have this idea and tomorrow we have that idea, and it achieves the same thing, but it's not specific to how we wrote it down in the manual, um, that makes it really hard to be able to fight us. Um, but I think that's an aspect of front, what frontline workers in the civilian world don't get is the opportunity to make those decisions for the best of the intent and the mission at hand. Yeah. Um, So that's where I started. Um, I headed into the nonprofit world as an IT admin um, and marketing dual hat situation. Um, So I helped that organization um, shift into a managed service um, protocol. Um, They previously had an in-house IT person. um, And while I understood a lot of the, the things that they were trying to achieve, one person can't really manage a whole a whole network for 50 people. Um, And so we hired a managed service provider and I was really the liaison between our organization and them on how we needed to do things, being able to upgrade our server, being able to keep our security patching clean. Um, And even like we had really old desktops. Um, So going through the procurement process for that um, and how that looks and feels. And we were a five region or a five county region in Washington state. So pretty large, um, displaced people. And one of the things that was significant there um, is the two most underfunded public utilities were transportation and telecom. Hmm. Um, so if you think about um, that we were in the workforce development world, so connecting people with jobs, the two primary ways that I learned people have barriers to meaningful work, to being able to have um Something that gives them purpose um, is reliable transportation and connection to the outside world. There's still so much of the United States that doesn't have reliable connectivity. Yeah. Um, and so that was my first exposure there, just understanding public utilities, how it impacts um, more rural um, parts of the United States on a, a larger scale. Um, from there, I moved into a um, solution service provider Um, And I fulfilled both operations manager and project manager roles there, um, doing anything from automating our software renewals process to turning things over from transactional to recurring revenue sales models um, and just all of those pieces of digital transformation that need to go along with it, right? Um, The pieces that nobody wants to touch, nobody wants to think about. Um, We did it this way 15 years ago because it worked and we don't want to break it. And it took a lot of effort to get there. Yeah. Um, And then since then, I've had the opportunity um, to start working at GCI that you mentioned before. Um, And so I've been here for almost three years and I've had a number of different roles, started as a program manager, uh, moved into an organizational change program management role, um, and now I'm back on the IT side, um, really relishing in the opportunity um, to help make things better for the frontline workforce. As a as an internet service provider, um, a lot of the work that we do um, involves our technicians on the front lines. Um, and so being able to clean up our backside ecosystem um, to, to make that work for them so that we're not... Um, Taking a square peg and trying to shove it in a round hole as far as, as far as our infrastructure is concerned. Um and so I have had really a breadth of opportunity in my career um, to absorb different things um, that at face value probably don't align, um, but really come together and create a, a cool harmony um in the long run.
0: It's a very Interesting and extensive background. There's something I want to go uh, pry on a little bit. You mentioned simulations. Of course, simulations are near and dear to my heart because it's what we uh, what we provide at Skillful. And I'm curious, I, I know this is a little bit off of our normal topic, but I, I'd like to get your thoughts on the value of simulations as a learning and practicing strategy versus what other techniques you may have used or may have considered at the time you talked about being able to to actually practice those scenarios and simulations mm-hmm. will you give me in your words what you think the value of simulations over perhaps more static forms of learning where you know you're reading and getting instructor-led training and things like that but maybe without the simulations and kind of how you would value those simulations
1: yeah so in the military context the value of simulations versus like being out there and doing everything is unmatched. Um, so if you think about the complex warfighting functions required on the battlefield, you've got all sorts of vehicles, you've got all sorts of ammunition requirements, power requirements. Um, that there's a lot of logistics that go into it. Um, for instance, to run a tank, for I want to say the parameter that I've heard is like one hour. It costs something north of one million dollars yeah. just, just to run that tank, yeah. and so if all of a sudden you have six tanks that need to do these practice um, movements, um, that like that, where is that budget going to come from? Right. Um, we all know that war is a huge, um, a huge factor for boosting economies, right? Because things are in production, you have this, that, and the other thing. Um, but when you're just training. Um, how do you reconcile that value? Um, you can't really. And so um, in this modern warfighting fighting function, um, simulations, like I said, have really become unmatched in being able to provide um, an analysis on the battlefield, the true capabilities, the, the skills and the expertise that come out um, as a result of these subject matter experts really um, like playing their role um, right. on a video game, if you will. Um, and so there are instructor led trainings that come along with it, um, you know, leading up to it. There's usually some sort of train up um, for everybody to be familiar, whether you've been there for four years or if you arrived there four months ago, um, everybody's gotta be on the same page as far as the capabilities at hand. Um, and so, so yeah, from that military perspective, just based on the operating cost alone of some of that equipment, um, simulations are absolutely the way to go. Um, and they don't provide necessarily everything, um, right? There's there's something that can be said for the tactile on the ground piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it provides enough um, that it can still become muscle memory by the time you're in a real world scenario.
0: Yeah, and, and defer some of the cost and risk
1: to mm-hmm.
0: when you're actually in battle uh, yeah. versus in that learning experience. And I'd say, you know, w- without the risk of life, certainly in, in our situations of, of helping frontline workers adopt technology. But a a lot of the other things that you said about the value of simulations, I think still hold true with, with Mm -hmm. software training is, you know, we, our, our customers can avoid the cost and complexity of actually having to stand up production Mm -hmm. systems for the purposes of training and instead, you know, focus that energy on a, on a less expensive and and safer way for those folks to train. So it's, that's really pretty interesting. Now let's... Let's go back to what you said at the beginning. I I didn't mean to go down that tangent, but obviously it just, it kind of piqued my interest a little bit, but I I want to go back to something that you said in the beginning. You were talking about the uh, maturity of corporate IT models. You were talking about um, folks resisting digital transformation. You, uh, obviously, you know, your exposure in corporate IT, you were thinking about a lot of things from a cybersecurity standpoint. Obviously those topics are of the utmost importance. There's another angle on that that I'd love to get your take on, which is those digital transformation initiatives and how they impact the women and men on the front lines and how they feel about these digital transformations, right? Um, the I'm just curious if you've, you know, in the projects that you've been a part of, did you see circumstances where those folks were uncomfortable with the new use of their technology. Perhaps they were being asked to record data at a level greater than what they had been asked to before. I've heard examples of folks feeling like they were being tracked and all of their work was being watched. I don't want to give you the answer to the question, but those are the kinds of things that I'm curious to hear if you've seen any examples of that from the other side, kind of looking back to corporate to say, why are they climbing up our butts with all this tech?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard concerns about job security. I've heard concerns like you mentioned about um, Big brother. Um, there have been concerns about in in certain projects that I've been on, um, about how digital transformation um, impacts um, impacts the teams, right? Um, so every time a, a new piece of technology or device gets rolled out, um that's learning, to your point about simulations. Um, so it's it's not just the the corporate impact of what goes into the infrastructure to make it happen. Um but then, you know, the frontline people who then all of a sudden have to learn something new. um and and going back to job security, I've heard countless times, well, if we do this, then what happens to my job? Um, the end and if we think about the progress of all of this information through the pandemic um there was some statistic i heard in 2020 um, that most organizations went through six months or went through two years of digital transformation in six months um and and that's hugely impactful for frontline workers um so like through the crisis lens, we're already panicked, because we don't want to be sick, because we have people in our lives that we need to take care of all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, um, your employer, right, the way that you make money, the way that you bring the the way you perceive that you bring value to the world um, says, hey, on top of all of this other crisis stuff that we have going on, here's a new thing that you have to learn. And we can't really train you on it, because we in your case, you know, don't want to invest in simulation efforts, um, because we don't have the health safety protocols in place to be able to step out and give you the training that you need. Um, that, and, and even when we think about like the unemployment benefits that were happening at the time, people were leaving the workforce left and right. Um, that we had a neighbor down the road during the pandemic, um, that we got to chatting with him um, a few times just about like, what their normal work was like versus like this COVID unemployment. Um, and this guy was making $1,500 a week on unemployment. Um, and he was giddy. He's like, I've never made this much money in my life. Um, so it was from the perspective of organizations needing to flex to meet the needs of this COVID world, but then also having people like rapidly leaving the workforce due to family members being sick, or the unemployment benefits outweighing working full time, um, like that—that that had a significant impact. Um, and that even like the big brother, you know, um, I've seen efforts where mobile devices are are rolled out, right, to be able to to benefit these frontline workers. Um, and we're like, okay, you have this app, this app, this app, and this is how we're going to use them. And people are like. do i have to do it like that you know i i used to just have a clipboard and i could upload it later um that so there are a lot of um a lot of aspects that i think going from corporate strategy down to the tactical front lines doesn't get translated very well um for whatever reason probably in most cases because what i was saying before about like the military model where um, you know, senior leadership really only has to give the mission and the intent, and then everybody below them can do whatever they need to, to ethically accomplish that task. Um, the, and so that gets missed in corporate America is what I've seen. Um, no matter if you're in the corporate side or if you're on the front line, um, you just don't have the benefit of, of seeing things through that lens. Um, so the even for like salespeople thinking about digital transformation. um, If you're moving from, like I said before, the transactional to the recurring revenue sales models, that changes then all of a sudden how they're inputting um, sales orders, how they're able to roll out POs. um, And like that's their bread and butter. Most salespeople I know um, are either mostly on commission or hundred percent commission based. And so if you start messing with how they, run those sales orders um like what are they going to do for their livelihood yeah um so that i i think the impacts of front lines with digital transformation really goes back to um some of what i was saying that like corporate models struggle with is like whether or not to use on-prem or cloud and how how to roll that out and how to manage it um the, and even the the adjustment of like waterfall versus agile communication patterns. Um, if you have this big undertaking that you're going to do the whole thing and then communicate at the end, um, frontline workers are going to be pissed. They are. Um, instead of being like, hey, guys, we have this big thing. We're going to do this little bit of work here and then give you an opportunity to give us feedback and then here and then here and, then here, and so on and so forth. Um, then, all of a sudden, you're building trust internal and external to the the i t model. Um, the, and I know that there are a lot of people working to make that better for frontline workers. Um, just what I've seen, um, you know, both from the sales and like the the field technician, like installing stuff in people's home side of things. Um, that there are people who care about that experience for them. Um, and I, I mean, I'm I'm a person who definitely cares ab- about like the end user experience. Um, and so I think taking that into account and being able to manage up, um, right? because that that's part of it, not just setting expectations for frontline folks, um, but being able to then manage up and explain to senior leaders why certain cues need to be made um to to inform um the people that are are getting impacted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people ask, just like, what about my job? That if we do this, then, then what happens? Um, and and I've also seen a lot of conversation around the future of work um and how we're probably moving from a, a significant model of doers. Um, into more of like data steward sort of um, efforts where if we have predictive AI, if we have these data models that just like roll on top of another, right? Um, Then all of a sudden, you know, you or I as admins or technicians or whoever just have to click a button and be able to go back in and update whatever was happening. Um, And so that's different that, Like, like where, how do we describe the value of that um, to people who weren't involved in the decision-making in the first place?
0: Well, I think you just hit on something that's, that's really important. And this, this speaks to the change management side of things is to explain what the impact is going to be to them, explain what their future is going to look like, how it's going to, to impact them. It may result in some layoffs or a reduction in force, but you know, in most cases, when I've been around technology deployments, it hasn't actually been to eliminate any headcount as a result of that. Maybe there was going to be reduced hiring or reduced backfilling of existing, you know, attrition and stuff like that. Um, But I think what I've seen happen more often than not is that we don't attack those topics proactively. And so the people that are potentially affected are left to wonder on their own, -hmm. What might happen in the absence of that complete communication? Yeah. And um, so I I think that's a shame and a missed opportunity. Now you mentioned before when we talked, you had been involved, I think it was an iPad deployment for the field techs. Any Mm -hmm. lessons learned from that? Things that worked well, things that didn't go so well, that Mm -hmm. maybe like a if you had a chance to do it again, you'd do it differently. Tell me about that.
1: Um Yes. So I've done a lot of iPad deployments in a couple of different capacities. Um, so one capacity was through the pandemic, remote learning initiatives, rolling them out to um, school sort of institutions all over the United States. Um, so you're
0: serving your customers in that case, I presume? Yeah.
1: Okay. So the, the customers were the, the schools, right? right. The, the departments of education, the school district themselves, just depending on the scale. Um, and so... There, in a lot of cases, um, we didn't get to see the fruits of our labor, like distributing distributing them out to teachers and kids. Um, but we got to see the effort, you know, getting the Macs and the iPads from the factory. Um, some of the supply chain issues that came there. yeah, um, Being able to work through um, like quality assurance things that right for um, every batch of devices that you get um, that, I don't know, maybe four out of five batches are totally fine. And then you have one batch that you're like, man, half of these are broken for one reason or another, whether it's physical or or, uh, like physical on the outside that you can see or something that's like miscircuited on the inside. so that was interesting. Um, and I share that just for perspective's sake. Um, there wasn't really anything I could have changed about that just based on right. the sales model. Um, but the, the iPad deployment to field techs um, highlighted an aspect of corporate IT that I hadn't yet been familiar with. Um, but because of my experience with the education institutions, I had a baseline understanding of what needed to happen. Um, And so I started digging into how we rolled out Jamf, um, which is the the scripting protocol that we use, um, that I say we, that IT professionals use um, to roll out um, Apple devices. Um, What sort of mobile device management that we use? Um, How do we enforce security principles? How do we ensure that the acceptable use policies that employees sign are being upheld. Um, that you know, all of that, um, including even thinking about field technicians, um, especially here in Alaska, you need an offline mode for everything that you're doing on on a mobile device. Um, we are three times the size of Texas. There are more moose and caribou than there are humans. Um, and we have winter like half the year, um. So, as as far as like austere conditions um, that field technicians face, um, they're pretty significant. And so, having an offline mode is is a huge portion of that, so that you know all the data that they're inputting while they're working is cached and then can upload the next time that they're connected. Um, without that, um you're facing, you know, multiple truck rolls that cost money hits the bottom line. Um, Or if there's a significant utility outage of some sort um, and all of a sudden, you know, we're trying to get people connected again um, or facilities brought back online um, without the ability to have offline caching uh, that just really limits the effectiveness of the technicians. can I
0: I want to ask you a clarifying question about one of the things you just said you You talked about the offline connectivity and and caching data, and potentially the risk was multiple truck rolls. Mm-hmm. I think I understand what you mean by that, but can can you fill in a little bit more detail why why would that happen? what What circumstance would cause the multiple truck rolls? because this really speaks to the ROI yeah. of a proper technology implementation, and I'd just like to hear you dig into that a little bit further.
1: Yeah, so multiple truck rolls, when you think about it from like the field services perspective in any sort of service organization, um, you're talking about the cost that goes into um, having the vehicle maintained, making sure that fuel is in the vehicle, making sure that the employee is paid to get out there. um, If there's any safety issues, that those are covered. Um, And so with the offline caching mode, if you... say you're the technician, Justin, if you go out to somebody's home or some network infrastructure location where you have to make a repair and you have this form on your iPad um, that's recording all of this data and and it's stuff like the RF frequencies, it's stuff like the the voltage for specific batteries, um, that how many RPMs maybe a motor on an HVAC is producing, Um, numbers that like most people are not going to remember off the top of their noggin. Um, so if, if then all of a sudden there's no opportunity to have the offline data in the event of an outage of whatever sort, um, and counting on the fact that most people won't remember numbers like that, then you have to send somebody back out, um, to be able to do that, uh, that inspection again. To, to make sure that everything is right, to make sure that the right parts are ordered. Um, and so it becomes um, an issue where then you had two dispatch employees that also needed to produce those. Right. Um, and you had time and effort spent on tracking potentially alarms that were going off um, within your operations center. Um, and, and so having those multiple truck rolls has a a snowball effect of just the cost that goes underneath it. And so as opposed to being able to go out one time, get the data that you need, no matter if you're online or not. Um, and it's just a one-time cost period. And so getting that back online that, I don't know, maybe that produces, we'll call it 10 K in revenue just from getting it back online and you had three K that went into it. Um, If you don't have that cash data availability, then all of a sudden you're repeating 3K until you get it right. Um, Not to mention the
0: impact to your employee experience, you know, Mm -hmm. having to do the job two or three times or somebody else having to come in and do the job that somebody else should have done right the first time. And then the most important of all is a customer experience. There's somewhere on the other end of that, there's a customer that's affected by this Mm -hmm. outage or this service. And if they're not able to get a resolution to their issue and it takes two or three truck rolls to get that done. You know, it may not affect that monthly bill, but it does affect that customer experience and their loyalty to to you and your organization.
1: Definitely. Well, and I say truck rolls um, here, it could be helicopters. um, It could be snow machines. uh, Like there are a number of different types of vehicles. Yeah. Um, Even speaking from like maybe a remote distribution center. um, Most of our, big remote customers are healthcare related. And so if then all of a sudden you're impacting a hospital, um, like, like what happens then? How do, how does care get distributed? Um, how do you know that the patient quality of life is maintained like through all of that? Um, and especially when we're thinking about things like COVID where people were on respirators and really, um, depended on that continuity of information flow, um, the, from the the internet connectivity um that yeah it a really interesting landscape when you take into account everything that internet service providers support
0: it, it's fascinating I mean it, this to me is what I, I love about my work I love about this podcast is being able to explore the real world the behind the scenes of of how the global mm-hmm. economy works yeah. and I think we throw around terms like, you know, offline is important for our tax, but I don't know that everybody involved or the stakeholders really understand the impact of that, right? It's not yeah. just about there being uh, a, an app on a phone or, or a tablet, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a lot deeper than that. And as you said, all the downstream impacts of that are really what matters, You know, two dispatchers being impacted, the trucks that are being impacted, the customer experience that's being impacted. I mean, there's so many things all because a decision was made at some point in the process to uh, not prioritize offline use uh, of a piece of technology, right? So when we think about adoption and we think about earning trust, you mentioned trust earlier when you talk about the change management elements with workers. This is true of all workers that we're we're trying to establish a trust relationship with them. And when we deliver technology that doesn't meet basic minimum requirements, we erode that trust and it Mm -hmm. affects our ability to get them to accept the change and, and, you know, come along for this new ride with us. Um, and so we, we can't afford those missteps like that.
1: Yeah. Um, so to finish answering your question, um, the thing that I would change about that iPad rollout for field technicians, um, In a perfect world, if I could have every aspect that I wanted um, through that process, there would have been a consensus from the start about what needed to be done and why it was important and the value that it would return um, as opposed to just focusing on the cost of it, right? Um, There's, in many organizations, there's a lot of focus on well, it's this dollar amount to be able to roll this out and it's this dollar amount to support it and it's this, that, and that. Um, and the the long game is really being able to think about that ROI. Like, okay, sure, it costs $500,000 to do this project right now. Um, but in the three-year perspective, we're looking at a turnaround of $3 million. Like, that that's a no-brainer. A half a million investment to have three million and three like um so that just really interesting from that perspective um and part of what had to go into that um was taking paper forms um and applying them into a digital um a digital format um and so we were taking something like 15 to 20 forms That had previously just been attached to a clipboard and somebody had a pen and they marked everything that they needed to do and maybe they remembered to scan it in at the end of the day or the end of the week um and so that's that's part of what frontline workers are are facing right now is the way that they did things was really based on trust it was based on tribal knowledge and now all of a sudden we're seeing organizations that are like hey we have to write these things down like if you don't show up to work tomorrow and you have all this information in your head and not on paper, that's a problem. Um, th- and so being able to even identify that value. Um, but there, there's there been um, a huge effort with that iPad stuff um, just between the devices themselves, the policies that go behind it um, and the digital application of the, the process that we're asking them to do um, with the devices um, and it's it's a little bit different in urban areas than it is in rural. Um, so, um and that's that's where really that offline mode becomes important. Um, that you can I mean, I'll, there's a significant portion of the network that relies on satellite backbone, that relies on microwave frequencies to be able to provide the connection. Um, and so if something if something's in the way of that, um, and you're over here, And you get the connectivity, but then you're over here and, and that barrier is there again. Um, that like, that is so easy to, to miss. Yeah. If you're walking back and forth in a, in a location and you're like, okay, cool. I have connectivity. And then you like do to do along the way. Uh, and all of a sudden you realize 20 minutes later, oh, I'm not connected anymore. Um, having that offline mode, going back to that point before, um, means that it doesn't matter, that it's just going to upload when you're ready.
0: If I've said it once, I've said it 10,000 times, and probably (laughs) at least a thousand of those have been on this podcast, you can't design mobile technology solutions for the field from a conference room. And what you just said is one of those examples, you have to go out in the field and see the physical and environmental conditions Mm -hmm. that our teams that we support are going to be working in. And you're not going to pick up every example of those things that you just described. Mm -hmm. but every single mobile project I've been a part of has had circumstances where there's some weird fluky thing. I have seen this at airports, you know, we have great wireless coverage at airports, but for some reason at two gates, we can't connect. Like, what is it? I don't know. Right. I mean, there's a lot of steel, there's machines, there's big airplanes, right. There's, there's just the reality of the real world. It doesn't, it doesn't always map out the same way as it did on the, on the, um, on the whiteboard in the conference room. So that, that's such a great example. And you actually kind of started down a path that I, I wanted to go explore with you a little bit further. And because we're already running out of time here and I, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about the analog to digital transition. And I mm-hmm. think you were just kind of touching on this, but I'd like to explore it a little bit further before we wrap up. Yeah. And that is you were replacing, I think you said 15 forms that mm-hmm. have been on paper, have been on clipboard. I want to comment on something that you said that was really powerful. I don't think I've heard anybody say, and I hadn't really thought about this myself, but the way that we did things in the past was based on trust. And Mm -hmm. now we're asking them to do things a different way. I think that's a pretty profound statement that you just made that it is something for all of us to think about from a change management standpoint, that we are saying there's a new, better, more efficient, more timely way of doing things today today. We want to replace those 15 sheets of paper with this new technology. What they mm-hmm. may be hearing is we don't trust you with your paper. We want it in this tablet now instead. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, yeah. a- am I understanding what you meant by that?
1: I think so. Yeah. yeah I mean, and it's it's a complicated idea, right? Because we're, we're looking at... Ge- generations overlapping in the workplace mm-hmm. we have a longer workplace life expectancy um, than ever before right that we see it in a, in a lot of different ways and so um you know there are still some some field services people in all sorts of industries that have been in the game for decades um they, and so they're used to doing things just you know like i'll get to it when i get to it um, but i think that that's a significant difference in the way things used to be versus how things are now. Um, We've got the world at our fingertips. Yeah. Um, And so um, even thinking about it in the way that we digest news, um, I I recently was listening to um, some podcast, I don't even know what it was, um, talking about the evolution of Twitter, now X, right? And so Twitter used to be, um, and this was even true during my undergrad. Um, I My undergrad was in digital media communications. Um, and so I spent a lot of time looking at how, um, how Twitter helped to permeate information, right? Yep. That you could expect a press release to come out from Twitter. Um, and like that was, that was the gold standard. Um, and now all of a sudden with the changes that have happened with X, um, it's no longer the gold standard. there There's nowhere that you can trust fully um that the news that you're reading is fully vetted, that multiple sides have been taken into account, um, that because we're in this, like as soon as it happens, just get it out there. It doesn't matter how true it is. We'll update it later. Um, and so we see that then reflected in our workplaces where previously, sure, it worked to just have a stack of papers that you had to scan in at the end of the week. That, that was how people um, hit quit in time, right? On Fridays was yeah. was being able to just tie up those loose ends. Um, and now with, um, with cloud, with the need to be able to see stuff um, with various aspects of maintenance um, that have changed Um, because there are more circuit boards than there used to be. Um, There's a lot more things that can go wrong because we've digitized a lot of what what wasn't before. Um, And so I talked about trust there, but from the perspective that the world moves faster than it used to. Um, And so to wait for somebody's stack of papers to be scanned in isn't really feasible anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. That we need to be able to know real time is this working? Is it not working um, in the perspective of public utilities, telecom, electric, whatever you need to know if your customers on the the far end are impacted. Um, and so having to wait for that stack of papers um, of things that technicians maybe um, inspected through the week and and say, you know, six out of 15 inspections had significant problems. Um, if you don't get those real time now, you're facing a customer experience issue. Right. Um, and so, so being able to bridge that generational gap, being able to take things from what we were talking about before analog to digital, the whole thing, like, it's so important to just understand, um, how those things intersect, why it's important, um, the, and, and some of, um, some of just the, the impacts that these multi-generation workforces bring, um, thinking, I mean, parents and grandparents of us, right. Um, that I know my grandfather's almost 90. He has never used a computer, doesn't want to use a computer, um, struggles even with the cell phone. Um, <laughs> yep. and so he's the type of person that he's like, so are you still just working from home on the computer? Like, I don't understand that. We used to go to work. Can't um, his head
0: wrapped around that."
1: It, yeah, but it's it, it's just it's just different. The world operates differently, um, and so um, going from the model where we inherently trust you, you've got this tribal knowledge, to a model where we have predictive AI overlaid on our data, to where we can at a glance see alarms from an iPad screen um, right. to know if our network or if our HVAC infrastructure um, are are online and working as expected. Um, those, those are are big things. And it's, um, it comes down to safety, it comes down to just how fast the world is. Um, So that I don't, I don't reference it in a negative way, um, just simply that it is. Yeah.
0: All right. So the last thing that I could, I kind of asked a really two questions, I just bundled them into one, as I often do. But let me come back to the second part of that, which is the the analog process. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, being kind of, jammed into a digital tool, I have some strong opinions about that, that I think I was picking up on from you. And it's just that process of taking, you know, 15 forms, whatever the number is Mm -hmm. and making them digital. I, I personally think there's a lot of downside if that's not done correctly. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see what, what your concern was about the digitization of analog processes and where things can go awry with that?
1: Yeah, so I've been exposed to it on a couple of different um, perspectives. So touching on that forms example first, um, one of the things that we were able to do applying the paper form to a digital platform um, is conditional questions, uh, right? So if this, then that, being able to being able to, instead of having a three page form that needs to be printed again, cost um, to the, all of a sudden having a single pane view on an iPad or a mobile phone um, that if you answer this way, it gives you the these, um, these follow-on questions. And if you answer that way, it gives you those. Um, I think the biggest win out of that was being able to shorten um, some of those cycles, as far as like how people need to, respond to them when they're on the ground, making, making changes.
0: Yeah. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And that, that has been one of my frustrations. So you, you and I are of like mind on this topic (laughs) that uh, there have been a lot of implementations that have taken just those paper forms and put them on a tablet. And Mm -hmm. I, I think maybe part of the argument is trying to minimize the, the change, right? This is what the form used to look like. Now it looks identical on the iPad, but you just gotta type it in. But I think that's missing like 80% of the value of the digitization of that process, right?
1: So another example that did not go swimmingly um, was what I was saying before about the transactional versus the recurring revenue models. Yeah. Trying to get all those minds in a room, right? Is still thinking about the corporate IT thing um, to be able to benefit the salespeople. But getting all those minds in the room again most of whom had been in their seat for a couple of decades um, and they were part of the the effort to make it that way and so um then having the conversation that said so we've got this process this is how it looks current state we need to get to a point where we can where we can acknowledge recurring revenue um and so then trying to have the conversation where you say, from this current state model, what can we break? Like like where can we break things first to be able to achieve this long-term effort? Um, and so the impact of not being able to break down the current transactional structure and move it into a recurring revenue is um, all of a sudden, so say you bought a 36 month, um, subscription to some platform right and so in the transactional model even though you bought 36 months it looks like a brand new sales order every month right Um, and so you're not able to roll up um the the margin dollars the revenue dollars like you can't see that at a glance you really have to get in there you have to look at the notes and hope that whoever sold it in the first place made the note Um, you have to hope that the record in your crm is accurate um, to be able to look at that. And so it becomes this financial nightmare um, to, to try to do things like subscription-based SaaS platforms um, on a transactional sales model. Right. Um, and so unfortunately that was a project I didn't see through to completion, um, but I can't imagine that it got any easier.
0: No, no, it was very <laughs> Those are great examples of of the real world. And you know, all there's plenty of justification, legitimate justification for why to move to that sales model, why to implement the technology the way that it was done. Um the change that the humans need to endure and adapt to in order to support that. Um but I think we just don't like change. No, we we don't. And we, we just have to accept that it is uh, probably a bigger change than many of us on the project team might recognize for the end users. And we need to uh, you know, give them the, the support, the education, communication, all those okay. things that are necessary to make sure that they could be successful. So, Hallie, we've run out of time, but I really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, dial in all the way from Alaska And uh, join me for the session today. I really appreciate you sharing your insights and experiences around this.
1: Yeah, thank you for inviting me on. It was luckily a short commute to my computer um, rather than having to fly to Dallas. Um, Mm -hmm. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate the opportunity. um, And I hope we've uncovered some stuff that really make people think.
0: I'm certain that we did. And to our audience, thank you for investing the time to spend with us to hear others' experiences and ideas around technology adoption with frontline teams. Hopefully you can take an idea or two from today and put it to work with the frontline teams that you support. If this is your first episode of Frontline Innovators, thank you for listening. If you've been here before, you already know that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the only end-to-end systems training platform that's optimized for frontline operations. You can learn more about how you can solve your frontline systems training challenges by visiting skillful.com. That's dot com. You can also just hit me up on LinkedIn and uh, would be happy to schedule something with you one-on-one. Thank you very much. And I look forward to you joining us for our next episode and we'll see you then. Allie, thanks again.
1: Thanks, Justin.